When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we're talking Western bird hunting with Levi Day. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 215. everyone welcome to another episode of the bird shot podcast thank you for tuning in today we've got a great conversation coming up with former guest of the show levi day we'll be talking plenty of western bird hunting chucker huns little blue grouse we'll get to that in just a bit i'd like to thank patreon patrons of the bird shot podcast as always coming up on the close of another month and likely on next week's episode we'll be announcing the winner of that final rise turkey vest giveaway that all patreon patrons are eligible for in addition to bonus content and the can coolers and stickers, which are a small token of appreciation for all those out there making voluntary contributions in support of the Birdshot podcast. I really appreciate it. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. And speaking of patrons, I do have a winner of that Onyx Elite subscription card we mentioned. That was, if you recall, we've been listening, following along, Patreon supporter Jerome won it, donated it back to the show for a youth hunter. Got a bunch of entries for that. And Patreon supporter Beth from Michigan entered her daughter in the giveaway, who did in fact win that Onyx Elite subscription card. So thanks one last time to Jerome for making that happen. And that Onyx Elite subscription card will be on its way to a youth hunter in Michigan. All right, I don't have much to go on about today other than I'm just patiently waiting for snow to melt around this part of the world. Spring is definitely taking its time. We may get some more snow over the next couple of days, but nothing out of the ordinary we just got a lot of snow to melt before any springtime activities begin taking place. In the meantime, 
hockey season is really heating up, which I imagine may interest some listeners, but certainly not all. But if you're a Minnesotan like me, there are lots of tournaments and teams with a vested interest that are playing pretty well at this point. So that has been keeping me occupied a little bit at least. But I am certainly eager for some other outdoor-related activities that are on the horizon. I think we'll move right into today's conversation today with former guest of the show, Levi Day. He is a now Idaho-based upland bird hunter. Been on the show before to talk about western bird hunting. Many of the things that we as upland bird hunters think about and pontificate about all year long, it seems. And you'll hear plenty of that on today's show with Levi. I always enjoy my conversations with him. And we cover a wide variety of topics today, including some shotguns and shooting, chucker, huns, some blue grouse conversation, a little gear-related conversation towards the end, and some other stuff as well. So with that said, I'd like to welcome into the conversation and back to the Birdshot Podcast, Levi Day. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, right back at you. And I am pumped to welcome you back to the Birdshot Podcast, buddy. And uh, I will just say that we were just chatting before we hit record and you kind of were, we're going to get into some blue grouse stuff today. And you were sort of reiterating that, you know, you kind of have just sort of taken that deep dive into blue grouse and maybe, uh, you know, you don't have a, a lifetime of experience of hunting them. But, but one of the things that I find interesting about, you know, doing this podcast and talking to people and, and bringing them back on say a year later is kind of like, you get this snapshot in time of where somebody's at with their headspace and, you know, you being a certain experience level right now, you have certain questions about things and there, those questions are probably different. You might have some of the same, but a lot of them are probably different than the same questions you would have about blue grouse in say 365 days from now. Right. Oh yeah. Without question, you know, and the blue grouse thing for me, I was an archery elk hunter forever. So I was like most guys in the West, they were a, a great bycatch opportunity uh, to cook and have over the campfire. Um, but then, you know, we're all always looking for new opportunities. And um, I had probably some of the same preconceived notions that other people do about blue grouse, but um, this year in relocating and having the opportunity close and the dogs and I were really, really itching to get out. And it's like, I'm going to go see what this is all about. So I was, I've been super intrigued, uh, being a Western guy, we don't have, I don't think that the allure is the same around grouse in general, other than of course the prairie grouse or sage grouse, you know, everyone really sure. loves them, but the allure that you guys have in the culture is something that I truly look up to. I think it is awesome. And you know, there's got to be something to it when you guys are calling it the king, because for me, you know, you're, you're putting something above chuckers. It's got to be a pretty big deal. Right. So right. <laughs> it was like, all right, I'm going to give this a go. So um, about mid-August, I loaded up and went and just started tootling around some mountain roads and located some springs and was looking for places that I thought maybe I could find some broods and sure enough would find a few broods and mark those spots then on the map. And then um, at the same time, I would correlate certain mornings, you know, that time of year for us, it's really warm and you get about 45 minutes, you know, from five to like five forty-five in the morning and then it's too hot, but yeah. I would drop the dogs on the ground and just start giving them the opportunity to run in the mountains and 
they spend a lot of time in the mountains anyway. We do a bunch of, you know, backpacking and high mountain fishing and, but they, they don't usually run into them. And, and I just started trying to put together the pieces of the puzzle to see what it might be like to find these birds and um, trying to access back um, and my prior knowledge of just chasing elk and places that I had found them and um, ended up just getting, I think, pretty lucky. Um, and I ended up finding kind of some pieces to the puzzle that seemed to really correlate with whatever mountain range I went to. I was able to find distinctive habitat that these birds were in and they were there and my dogs were finding them and um, couldn't wait for season to get rolling. And once it got started, uh, I have grown and my admiration for those birds by leaps and bounds, you know, yeah. your podcast and having conversations with you and all the rough grouse hunters. And then people like Josh Tapman too, who's written quite a bit about blue grouse and is just a blue grouse fanatic. And I've had lots of conversations with him and, um, yeah, I'm definitely hooked. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid full on now. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And, and I, I recall, I think getting some pictures from you, uh, maybe early in the hunting season of, of some blue, blue grouse that had made it to bag and you were, you're pretty jazzed up at the time. So, uh, for sure. I was trying to follow in your guys' footsteps. <laughs> like well, the, the mentees finally getting it done. Right. Right. You know, the, the whole, the grouse thing. I mean, I find myself obviously like sort of neck deep in it or lost in it at times where, you know, you say grouse and in my mind, when I say grouse, like I'm saying, I mean, roughed grouse. And I, and I think right. most people know that, but, um, it's, it's very like, you know, you're kind of deep in the lore and the culture at that point when <laughs> grouse is a, is a much more uh, general term. There are lots of other grouse, which of course I find interesting as well, but you're right in suggesting that, uh, the rough grouse carries with it almost like it just sort of carries with it a history. And, and probably a lot of that has to do with, um, where it, where it lived and where population centers grew in this country and, and it made the liter sure. the literature and, um, you know, I, we could go on and on about sort of the, the sporting nature of hunting the rough grouse and the things that people get excited about, but, uh, it's a big world out there and there are lots of birds, including other grouse. I, I would be willing to say at this point, like, I just sort of have a, I just have a kind of a fascination or an interest in gallinaceous birds. They just, uh, they kind of trip, right. trip my trigger, I guess. I hear. Yeah. And you know, for someone that is wax poetic about upland hunting anyway, how do you not get sucked into the history and the tradition and all of the writing and everything that is around rough grouse hunting and then, you know, proximity to habitat is everything. So for me, when I'm, when I'm thinking about grouse, you know, I'm fortunate enough that I can hunt three species of grouse on the same day without that being something that um, is just segmenting for, for one species or the other. Obviously, there's subtle differences in the habitat that those birds call home, but um, in the same walk, you could find spruce grouse, blue grouse, and rough grouse. So, um, yeah, it's it's a... You can look at habitat and I'm getting better at it to where I can definitely distill down to what species I'm going to find within that certain walk. But with the expanses of public land and opportunities that are around in the West, um, you know, you can, it's all about where you park. If you're parking midway and climbing to the top of the big ridges of the transition zones between, you know, the sagebrush and the pines, 
you're going to find blue grouse and then you drop down into the riparian areas to circle back around your truck and um, you can get into the rough grouse and you know so you just it's the opportunities are are really there which is why i always group them the way i do yeah i love it i love it again got me thinking about sort of the history and lore and you know i will readily admit i am the type of person that when i get interested in something i you could say i look for ways to kind of uh, build it up in my mind and sort of add to it. So that's one of the reasons why people hear, often hear me referencing books. And, um, you know, I don't, I know I'm not alone in that sort of behavior, but I don't know that everybody does that, but I definitely will seek that out and try to like add more to things that I'm interested in. So much so that right now I'm kind of, I've been asking people lately about like, what are some of those books in the turkey hunting world uh, that kind of right. carry with it the the weight and the lore and the culture. And I've got some good recommendations and have started reading some of those in anticipation of spring. Are you, uh, are you that way at all? A hundred percent. Cause for me, what it is, is it's, it's a point of contact and a point of connection mm. year round. Right. So we're really fortunate that we have this endeavor that for some of us, like, you know, let's say the average guy gets three and a half to, to five months of being able to do what we love, which is pretty dang good when you look at the grand scheme of, you know, sure hobbies or endeavors that people embark upon. But for me, it's, it's that it's no different than um, spending time shooting clays or working with the dogs in the off season. It's that continual point of contact where it's at the forefront of all the things that I do or think about. And I, and I'm a big believer in that, you know, you want to improve at something. Um, the more that that is running through your mind and you are visualizing or dreaming about it. Um, I mean, what good would the world be if we didn't have passion? And to me, it's just, it's, it's an expression of passion all the time. So that connection is, uh, no, I, I totally understand it, which is what drew me then, 100% 100% to to looking at rough grouse or the blue grouse and, yeah. and exploring those opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, we probably will, well, we will circle back to blue grouse because I do have some questions that, that some folks had sent me. Um, I had been, I had mentioned this to Levi that some listeners were kind of suggesting a, a blue grouse intensive episode and this will not necessarily be that, but I figured since I was going to have Levi on, we would, we would dip into it a little bit. So we'll get to that. But I want to just kind of catch up with you a little bit. And you did have an event today in the family with bird dog related that I think is uh, warranted bringing up here on the podcast, something that uh, many people go through and myself included have been thinking about, but have not yet done, which happens to be getting a a female dog spayed. So uh, how's how's Pop doing? She's doing good. She's laying here with me right now, but it's amazing. You know, they're just so resilient. We don't give them near enough credit. Um, you know, ultimately those decisions, I think for most of us are based upon wanting to do whatever's best for the, the health and well-being and longevity of not only our hunting partner, but a member of our family. And, um, we dang sure don't give them enough credit for their resiliency because, uh, you wouldn't know, I, I mean, I'm having to keep her down. Like she has to have a leash on all the time. Cause she can't jump, you know, she can't jump off the bed or go downstairs or any of that kind of stuff. So, and if I let her go, she would run out. We just had some doves in the backyard and I was had her on a leash and she just slammed around, you know, on point on them. Like if I let her go, she would just sure want to bore into the country. So 
Yeah, it was a major decision for us. And to be, you know, quite frank, I know that I'm somebody that um, oftentimes can maybe overthink some situations. But I also think that with everything that I said prior, when you're talking about a member of your family, and um, even though it is a rather um, uninvasive surgery, it's still surgery. Yeah. And it is finite. Um, that decision is done and it's done. Right. And I think all of us that put a lot into this endeavor and care about it and the performance of our dogs, we spend a lot of time researching and we go out and we try to purchase within the confines of, you know, aesthetically what's pleasing to us and the type of hunting that we do and the family dynamic, the dog that is the best fit. And most of those dogs, um, I, I can speak at least for myself, you know, I, I'm trying to find the best fit in all those areas and also the type of animal that is exceptional. And, um, so you have this, this dog that in most people's regard would be a breed forward animal, you know, um, based upon my experiences, sure. You know, she exhibits all the characteristics, not only as a citizen of the house, but in the field that I find pleasing in every way. So that decision weighs really, really heavy on you. So what I had to do is again, this might be going way too deep for a lot of people, but I kind of broke it into three categories of, um, the direction that we wanted to go because having a dog that her heat cycles you know, were very minuscule. She never demonstrated any behavior that I would cons consider um, concerning. You know, she never got possessive. She wasn't clingy. Mm. Um, it was never too big of a deal to take care of it. Um, she's just a really great citizen all the way around. So it was like, from a convenience standpoint, which it's sad to say, but, you know, I think it does boil down for a lot of us to, we do it because of the convenience factor. Mm -hmm. But then also... Um, my wife and I are very much in the, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of Western medicine. There's no doubt, but I believe those parts are in those animals for a reason. And they make those animals dispositions and their drive and, um, who they are because they are there. And if we could figure out a way to, to maybe not have to do something as invasive as spay or neuter, then that's definitely something that I would want to look at. So when I started reaching out and trying to, distill this down to making a decision. I, the first thing I wanted to consider was I want to talk to the breeder. I want to, yeah. the guy that knows the lineage of these dogs better than anybody and see what his thoughts are on it. And, you know, this puppy came from Cedar Creek gun dogs, um, out of Iowa. And, um, so I had extensive conversations with, with Kirk about, you know, what were his thoughts based upon, um, behavior changes, um, maybe diminished drive, yep. um, any of the, the possible things that he could see from knowing the lineage. And after an extensive conversation with him, then I took all that information into account. Then after that, it's like, okay, the next person I want to talk to is I want to really look at the health risks associated with either doing it or not doing it. So I'm very fortunate that, um, you know, I, I have a relationship with Seth Bynum and mm. was able to have extensive conversation with him. And he gave me just some fantastic insight and did a really, really good job of just presenting the facts either way. Because a lot of the information, I think, for us out there when we're trying to make these decisions isn't necessarily geared towards 
this super small population and supporting mm-hmm. dogs that we represent. You know, it's the 30,000 foot view of everything from the Chihuahua to the junkyard dog and yep. performance breeds really don't necessarily fall into all the categories necessarily of some of the risks that are associated with other breeds. So no one knows that better in my mind than Seth. So um, I was able to take then the information that he he was willing to to share with me, and he also has a dog from the same kennel. Oh, okay. So he knows from a performance standpoint um, what kind of dog I'm talking about, and he gave me some fantastic information. So in my mind, then there's two out of the three. I've got um, the guy that knows the lineage. I've got an expert in the field of health for either having them spayed or not. And the next then was, I want to start looking at pure performance. So I reached out and have again, a, a really great relationship with Ryan Mulcahy from born to run kennels. And in my opinion, you know, he's a guy that puts his hands on, on more dogs than probably just about anybody in a year and sees a lot of variant in what that could potentially bring from a performance standpoint by having the dog spayed. Again, looking at the research, most of the research that I was able to find is on sled dogs or on greyhounds, you know, track dogs. Um, And again, knowing that different breeds exhibit different behaviors based upon a different stimulus, it really leaves the guy scratching his head and wondering. So um, again, Ryan was very, very gracious with his time and um, gave me some wonderful information and um, yeah, and then to, to just take all that together and distill it down. And we made the decision to, to go ahead and, and have her spayed. So yeah. we had been through three cycles. Okay. Um, yeah, the dog is two years old, right? Yep. She's two years old. She's fully grown. Growth plates are all, um, connected. All the connective tissues are strong. She's very muscled up. Um, the timing right now is, is really, really great. So yeah, it, it, for our family and for what I do of hunting around a lot of other people and almost all of my friends have intact males, um, which isn't a huge issue, you know, if you're paying attention, but it, it's just another thing to have to worry about. So yeah. we, we distilled it down and yeah, that was the decision we made. So, and we'll just see how it pans out. Yeah. I'm, I obviously have a dog of us of a similar age and it has been on my mind as well. I mean, I don't really want to risk sort of wading into uh, murky waters, you know, without like subject matter experts here. And the the folks that you mentioned, um, I'm certainly familiar with at least two out of the three and, you know, probably would be worth doing a dedicated episode at one time with, with somebody like a, a set Bynum or somebody. Yeah. Um, but as much as you could, so obviously you went through with it and I was going to say, so you, you don't have uh, male dogs in the house, right? Correct. Yeah. So that, I do not. Yeah, that's I not have an another state female as well. Okay. Who in my mind was, she's a fantastic dog and I love her dearly, but is not what I would consider a breed forward animal. Gotcha. Um, she exhibits some characteristics of things that I don't, I don't necessarily think um, are, you know, I think every breeder out there sets out to, at least in, in my mind, they should be setting out there to improve the breed. Mm-hmm. That is, that is why they do what they do, um, which is why I'm not going to be a breeder i'm going to leave the breeding to the professionals and i know that i'm not one so um but in my mind the good breeders that i've talked to or the the places the kennels that i've had and respected that is their number one objective and um so that was definitely something that wasn't a consideration with my first one yeah 
Got it. So, yeah, and again, to to comment on one of the things that you mentioned that I I now have a I have a um, an intact male and an intact female, and going into that, I I had a having never had a female dog before, my uh, uneducated assumption was that the heat cycle would be you know kind of a definitely an inconvenience on the female dog side of things, which I have since learned is definitely not the case. Like, and I, I've only had one female dog, but, um, Rose is very much, um, it's like a non-issue, you know, the, uh, right. the, the cleanliness side of things is, is very, very minor. Um, maybe the first one was, was not, not as minor, but the, the sub- right. subsequent two cycles that we have been through have been like a completely a non-issue. What, uh, I did not expect, and it was just complete, you know, naivete on my part was, uh, how much my male dog would absolutely drive me crazy for about two weeks straight, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> having, having them around each other. Uh, so yeah. that was unexpected. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and, you know, initially in getting into all this, I think we all, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know, but when I was looking at all of it in my mind, I thought, gosh, there can't be anything easier to have around the house than a spade female. And I still think that's probably true. Yeah. Um, but then when you get down to the brass tacks of the decision-making with all of that, it is a little bit different and there's a lot more to consider. And um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting journey to embark on because, um, and I think I probably speak to what most bird dog owners are considering. You know, I think if, if you're, you're someone like Ryan Mulcahy, you know, he thinks about things from a very different optic mm-hmm. yeah. than we do. Yeah. Um, and I understand that and respect that. One thing that I really appreciated about my conversation with him was his ability to, to be such an intelligent man and to have the conversation with him in a way where it wasn't just pushed from his optic. You know, I'm the number of coveys that my dog finds don't determine the amount of bread on my table. So if I go out and my little short hair finds uh, nine coveys and runs 35 miles and uh, could have found 10 being intact, I'm never going to know the difference and it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And um, I really appreciate that about him. And, and I think that it's something that a lot of us who these dogs then become members of our family and they're part of our everyday lives probably don't think about enough in the beginning of that it is it's, it's a, a rather major decision. At least it was in my house. So yeah, yeah, it, it took a, a lot of thinking and maybe we just overthought it too. And we're crazy. Dogs. <laughs> well, I certainly appreciate Guilty as charged. Yeah. Probably. I appreciate you sharing the, the thought process and some of that perspective here with me as I, as we'd been talking, I was, was curious as well. And like I said, uh, we'll, we'll kind of leave it there. I mean, obviously you went through with it. So you reached a point where you were comfortable with the decision in knowing that you are still, uh, a bird hunter and she is still a bird dog and uh, you have no intentions of changing any of that. So you, uh, yeah. you reach that point in, in talking to these other folks and I won't ask you to dive any deeper into like what conversations you had with them. We'll just say that uh, if listeners have questions along these same lines or people that they think would be good guests or anything along those lines, things to share, things to submit at the risk of uh, flooding my email inbox, please, please feel free to send those to Nick at birdshotpodcast.com. Uh, it's something that's been on my mind. So uh, maybe we'll put something together in the future on that. But yeah, uh, I think it's a great idea. Um, and I, and you know, if anybody's got any questions too, again, I'm no professional, but they just wanted to take a, a deeper dive into 
some of the thought processes that I had in going into it, I'm, I'm more than happy to share anytime too. Cool. Appreciate that. Well, let's uh, just kind of wrap it up with the basics uh, regarding things that would matter to uh, somebody like you or me with pup. What's the, what's the, uh, the outlook now? Like how long do you have to kind of keep her inactive? When will she be back to a hundred, hundred percent? There's a little bit of variance in that um, in opinion. You know, my vet is the instructions I have is like, I'm having to keep her pretty much, down for 10 days. Um, then after that, we can start introducing light duty, uh, the stitches and everything will be healed. They use a laser treatment on, um, the dogs that they spay that has accelerated, uh, the incision points, the Mm -hmm. healing of them tremendously. Like she was saying that she thought they were cutting three to four days off of some of the previous recommended, but I think overall to have a dog all the way ready to rock and roll to do what I do. Um, and based upon some, again, the conversations I had with the people that I had, I'm looking at two months. Okay. Um, now that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm going to put her on birds by the end of April and, um, you know, we'll, we'll do some fishing and, you know, we'll do our normal exercising and I'll swim them. And, but it's going to take her a couple months to where she's right back to where she, where I would consider she's ready to go do. 40 miles in in chucker country yeah yeah and so good you know i'm sure this was not uh, by accident but good timing for you you've got uh, plenty of time until next hunting season yeah yeah and you know we're really fortunate here we do a lot of fishing this time of year and then um i really i've got a great place to swim the dogs i've got a canal that it's funny my short hair acts like it's a racetrack she jumps in right at the start and won't get out and will swim it for 400 yards wow. to 500 yards. <laughs> and then I just turn around and she'll swim against the current the same way. So it's really funny and she won't try to get out. So I've got a great little, uh, exercise water. Yeah. Pool that's efficient then, for you. Yes. Yes. It's, it's outstanding. And then by about early July, I can start accessing some high mountain lakes and my wife and I'll start backpacking. And most of the lakes we go into are you know, in that five to eight mile range and the dogs get to run like crazy and high mountain lakes are always a bunch of vert to get up into them. So we do that all summer as well. And then mixing in and out, you know, some training sessions and she'll get to, to run and everything. But by July, she should be ready to, to really start hitting the hills hard. So, yeah, yeah. Good deal. I do recall when Hartley had his ACL or cruciate cert TPLO surgery, it was a similar, you know, it was like a eight weeks, no activity recommendation. You know, that was my instruction. And I thought that was going to be awful, but I too did it around, I did it New Year's Eve. And so it was the dead of winter and we did kept yep. them on the leash and it wasn't too bad. And we did the laser, um, the laser therapy too, um, on the, on the incision and stuff. And, uh, I don't, obviously I didn't, I don't, I can't compare like that versus not doing it, but I do recall his recovery was, was a lot smoother and a lot a lot easier than I was sort of anticipating. And, and then we had all season to all off season to build up to the next season. And that went very well. And I, I mean, I'm, I don't know the difference between the TPLO and, in getting spay. They're obviously two different surgeries, but, um, you right, got, but there's an incision, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it is a remarkable, you know, you get just, again, speaking to just how resilient and tough, uh, right. bird dogs are, but you know, you get them home, right after having an incision you look at them and our only frame of reference is if that was on our body, you know, mm-hmm. and you're like, Oh my gosh. And then four days go by and you're like, Holy smokes. Like it's, it's astounding how fast they heal. I and mean, they're just really remarkable critters. Yeah. 
Yeah, without a doubt. All right. Well, let's let's segue from there. And man, where do we go from here? We, let's let's talk a little bit about your. We, we kind of dove into 2022 hunting season, talking about the blue grouse. Uh, but give me a look back. You know, when we when we had you on about a year ago or whenever that was, you were relocating uh, back to Idaho. You'd been there before, and you're kind of back on some familiar territory. So, what was uh, what was the rest of the season like for you? And and how did things go getting back into some familiar covers? It was an absolutely wonderful season. You know, last year was the first year in a while that I haven't really traveled much. I okay. pretty much stayed right around Idaho and in being here, you know, I don't need to talk about it. If people know the opportunities that we have. And, um, I got to link up with some great friends. Um, I got to hunt with Matt again, this last year, we went and did a sharp tail hunt together over in Idaho. And then, um, I hunted a bunch with my buddy, Tristan, which was absolutely fantastic. I got to, I was over to a spot in Oregon and, and get my first mountain quail, which was a lot of fun. Thanks to his help. And, um, hunted with my buddy Tony a lot and yeah, it was, it was a fantastic season. I was in the middle of starting a new job and, um, they were very gracious and given me the opportunity to be able to still spend the time. I didn't get to do probably quite as much as I would have liked, but I mean, I still, I, I hunted 63 days or something last year and, um, it was, the hatch was fantastic for every species of bird that I went to pursue and, it was a it was a wonderful year. Um, I, I cannot complain. You know, I got to hunt blue grouse and rough grouse and sage grouse and sharp tail grouse and chuckers and huns and mountain quail and valley quail and yeah, it, it was it was a wonderful year for sure. We kind of had some weather trouble where mm. we we were really hot and then it immediately turned off and dumped a bunch of snow and it can sometimes present some issues with getting around certain places here. But when that happens, usually I just turn my attention to the big ditch and you know, finished out the season there and it's just such a remarkable place. So yeah, it was, it was everything a guy could ask for. I don't know how many times, you know, you sat on the tailgate after a day and reflection and was like, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to get any better than this. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. This was so, so kind of along those lines, um, I was thinking about this earlier today, like I'm assuming here, but I'm kind of guessing that maybe you are the same way, but sometimes like as I look back on different seasons like there there are sometimes themes during a season for me and in recent years I think it would be you know going back a few years would be like really really uh as I've gotten more experience hunting over my pointing dogs which you know is not all that uh I've only been doing it for I guess getting on 10 years or so now so it's it's a little bit of time but you know the dogs aspect of it was huge for a while and then it was wing shooting really leaning into wing shooting and shotguns and not that those aren't present every year but sometimes you're just in a different headspace and there's a different theme yeah. to the season Th- this year to give you an example I would say when we got into our rough grouse season around here I very quickly kind of realized it took a little while it was kind of a slow start mainly due to some hot weather but eventually realized there were there were a lot of birds in the woods and it was a good year to be out there and I kind of quickly transitioned into um, doing a ton of exploration and trying to hit as many new spots as I could and something that I've been talking about a lot in recent years or or a little bit on the podcast is kind of like the cover types and and I get into sort of the soil types and things that I've been paying attention to and observing so I kind of really leaned into that year and just hunting different areas and really uh, taking a look at the covers that I was hunting and, and kind of 
looking deeper into them, knowing that I was, I was probably going to find birds in a lot of those spots. So at the end of the season, looking back, I could say that I explored a lot, hit a lot of new spots, was rewarded in doing so. And in years going ahead, like whether the bird numbers are what they were last year or not, I will have confidence going back to some of those spots. And there's always, you know, I just felt like I scratched the surface too. You know, there's always around the next corner over the next hill, there's always, always more to explore. But um, does anything like that jump out at you? Like, like what kind of headspace were you in this fall? Yeah. You know, I would have to echo the exact same sentiments. (laughs) Um, So being from Idaho, Uh, yeah, there's some familiarity, but then there was a lot that was different too. Um, you know, I'm in a completely different spot and my journey as an upland hunter is in a completely different space than it was previous. Mm, And I spent a lot of time this year, uh, having to learn and go and do new things. And I think, you know, it's really interesting if you, you could take a deep dive into where our headspace is every season and really base it upon levels of proficiency, right? So Mm -hmm. when you do first start as a new handler, you're trying to figure out when you're helping the dog, when you're hurting the dog, how to approach a dog on point and and all the subtle nuances that, that are with that. And then you talk about the wing shooting again, and then it's shotguns and fits and payloads and um, off season work. And then again, how to approach the dog to create the best opportunities for you. And yeah, my headspace was exactly where yours is or was this previous season. Um, I would say that, oh my goodness, I bet 90% of the hunting I did this year was in country that I had never been in. Wow. And um, the amount of confidence that, and and I, like you, uh, was very, very fortunate. I did receive, you know, you make connections uh, within, whether it's uh, our community or industry or whatever you want to call it. And um, you start to build this repertoire of people that are, are willing to, to maybe throw you a bone and then you can take that and run with it and build from there and start to put pieces of the puzzle together. And the amount of confidence and levels of proficiency that you start to acquire from doing those things is, is unbelievable. And I was in the same boat as you and um, it, it's pretty gratifying. Uh, There's no question. I don't think that any one of them offers more gratification than the other, but the sum is, is definitely really, really special and going to somewhere new and being able to look at country and go, this is what I'm going to find here. And next thing you know, a dog goes out and stacks up and sure as heck, that's what you find. And then for it to be continually rewarded over and over again, you, the dogs build confidence and you build confidence and it's, it's a, it's a really neat thing. There's no doubt. So yeah, I was in the exact same space as you. Yeah, that's, that's cool. I, and I, uh, I, I did not ask you that before. So it was a, that is a coincidence, but uh, I know it, it is interesting. And and maybe we're just sort of uh, progressing along as uh, in similar, cause last year we were, uh, we were diving pretty deep into shotguns and shooting. We'll talk about some of that. It's not to suggest that you uh, master one of those aspects and never come back to it. I mean, I will come back to it, but it's like, I kind of always have capacity for, for a, maybe a main theme or something that I'm kind of diving into. And um, that's yep. what it was this well, year. It's a constant pursuit in every area. Right. Yep. And um, again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. It's that, that point of connection, mm-hmm. that point of contact that you are always in my mind for me being an upland hunter is I'm always an upland hunter. I'm not just an upland hunter when it's upland season. Yeah. And, um, 
I need things like that in my life and I thrive upon them. They're driving forces for me. And um, when I'm in the middle of a, a tough day at work, that's where my mind goes. Or I'm on a long run, I'm putting together a shotgun in my brain. Or, yeah. I mean, that's just, yeah, I think those are, that's, all, again, it's passion. And how could you, how could you ever not want to pursue that? Yeah. I don't know what the, I don't know what the 2023 theme is going to be yet, but I've got a, I'm just letting it marinate now. You know, we'll see. There you go. We'll, we'll see what happens uh, between now and, and September 2023. But well, it uh, better be more ventures west. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that would be a good one. You know, I, I got, I picked up in talking to some, you and some other Western hunters last fall. I, uh, one thing I I really did over the last year was expanded my uh, book collection. I've got a lot of books that I have not read. I just kind of went on like a little bit of a buying spree lately, trying to trying to build that up. And so I've got plenty to dive into. And I was I was picking Andy Wayman's brain about books that kind of focused on Western hunting and sharp tails and that sort right. of thing. So I've got a lot of stuff to uh, spark the flame, I guess, if you will, between now and then. So. Hopefully we'll get out there. Well, as a, as a guy that I can imagine that there is an undisputed king without question in your mind, it would be really fun to have you uh, dip your toe in and, and see what you thought, what I would say most Western guys would say the king is and and do a little comparison. Well, I would, I would love to do that. You know, I'm, I, I will say the, the whole king thing I've always, I've always, I grew up knowing about, you know, the rough grouse being um, referred to as the king of game birds. And I guess you could say I kind of bought into that when I was younger, just because I just, I liked it. You know, I was into the rough yeah. grouse, but I, I think now, like I'm too objective to sort of like, to just realize, like, I've never hunted bobwhite quail. I've never hunted chucker. I've barely hunted yeah. huns. Like I'm, I'm reluctant to sort of label anything the king without having experienced all these other birds to a, to a greater extent. So, um, the rough grouse holds a special place in my heart and will probably never be, uh, supplanted from that place in my heart. But, uh, as much as I love the rough grouse, I, I, uh, I certainly look forward to being able to hunt chucker and huns and some of these other birds that, that hold that same place in other upland bird hunters hearts, if that makes any sense. And nor should it ever be, you know, lose that seat in your heart because, the whole thing is the entire experience, right? And you mm. think about all of the history and tradition and the memories that you have around doing that. Right. There's no way it would ever be replaced. No. Um, because it's, it's, it's the entire experience. Um, it's, you know, the places that they live and the people that you do it with and the memories that you have doing it and the specific gear that's to it. And, you know, there's nuances to all of it. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, being able to, to, they all offer something really, really special. I, I, you know, I'm guilty of coming home. And after my first time I went to Montana telling my wife, like, oh my gosh, you know, I think sharp tails might be, might be hit now. <laughs> and then, you know, right now I'm really on bluegrass and like, I, I that's all I can think about is how amazing they are. And but then I'll get done and at the end of January and you're, you know, looking 1800 feet down at, and it's snow-capped mountains all the way around, and there's elk standing there, and mm. you've you know worked all day long, and chasing chucker is really hard to beat. And um, yeah, I don't know. They're they're all very special. There's no doubt. That's the kind of stuff that fuels the fire for sure. Yep. Well, I do recall in our in our last conversation, we were talking a fair bit about 12 gauges and 28 gauges, and I'd like to maybe stir up that conversation a little bit and. Let's talk about that. What 
what was did you have a did you have a gun that was your your primary shooter this year and kind of you know whether it was a major or minor theme of your season what was your headspace around shotguns and shooting oh goodness talk about a constant evolution right <laughs> yes um yeah. and as we continually learn and have experience it's amazing how things can potentially change mm. um so i am still a a very big advocate of shooting, you know, again, it's been well-documented not only on here, but in multiple places that there's no such thing as a truly square load, but the proper load per gauge. Yeah. And what running an ounce and an eighth out of a 12 gauge was remarkable for me. That's something that I really, really loved. Um, but I was able to kind of took a venture then and going back into a 20 gauge this year and decided to stick on the same track and, I ran a seven eighths ounce load out of the 20 gauge and it was for me to this date, the most effective thing that I have ever swung at a bird. Hmm. Um, whether, you know, there's a multiple, there's a multitude of things that that play into that. Right. We start talking about maybe it's the subtle tweaks within gun fit. Right. Um, very few people have the same exact gun in all four gauges or, you know, all the gauges to go out and compare, uh, apples to apples. Right. So there's right. Even if they're the same make and model, they're not the same. Right. (laughs) They are not. Um, and so, yeah, I, I carried a 20 gauge this year for the lion's share of all of my hunting. And I ran a seven eighths ounce of seven and a half. And it was, exceptional Mm. uh it didn't matter whether it was late season chucker or you know to blue grouse to sage grouse uh, you name it it was it was fantastic and the amount of confidence that i built with that was it's it's up to this point it's been the thing i've been most confident with without question yeah see that's a that's an it's it sounds like it maybe was was similar to me last year going from 20 to 28 gauge primarily as what i shot in you know, again, you don't, you can't control for everything like patterns and and all that sort of stuff. But Mm -hmm. I think you, you can take a step back and say, like, from a real world perspective, it sounds to me like you would sort of make a statement like I was making where, you know, you very quickly realized you weren't missing birds because you were shooting a 20 gauge and not a 12 gauge. Would you say that's accurate? A hundred percent. Yeah. But it was really like, for me being um, so in love with the 12, which I still am, I mean, that's the gun that I shoot for sporting clays. Yeah. Um, it made the appearance quite a few times. I would say 10 or 12 times this year during season. But the one time I had um, my birthdays in January and a couple of my buddies came over and we spent some time hunting and um, that's what they make the trip over for. And uh, the one I've never had this happen to me in my life, I decided you know, I'm definitely a guy who likes to really take care of my guns. Um, yeah, I'm a trucker hunter and yes, they, you know, there's this, this reputation that they get beat up and all this stuff. And for some people they do. And I think some people are really hard on gear and that's okay. And other people aren't. Um, I'm the guy that can get five seasons out of a pair of Krispies and it's not because I only hunt 10 days a year. Yeah. Um, you know, I spend 120 days a year on average outdoors, whether it's hunting or fishing. So they get a lot of miles, but you, you know, I, I'm able to take my gear further. It seems like than than most people, whether I'm just lucky or what happens, but yeah. I'm very intentional. So you would look at my trucker gun and think it'd never been out of the case. So there was a day that it happened to be a little bit rainy or whatever. So I'm like, well, I'm going to take the 12 and, uh, 
Yeah, boy, did I catch a lot of hell because I had, I struggled. I <laughs> like I literally had. To, it's one thing to run out of shells when you're doing any kind of hunting, but um, when you run out of shells and you're in Hell's Canyon, and you have to walk back, you know, three miles across, <laughs> you know, two thousand feet worth of up and down, and your dogs go on point, and you're walking up and you know saying bang for them, and you have no shells left. And I'm sitting at the tailgate and I found two shed horns and shot two shot, two huns. And Jeez. they're like, man, it sounded like you uh, were just, I was figuring you were done. And I'm like, yeah, I was done. I was done out of shells. So <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, I caught a lot of hell for that one. Yeah, that's wild. But so the 20 gauge was, was the primary shooter for you. And you said seven and a half shot, which in uh, this would have been, I'm pretty sure I, I interviewed our mutual friend, Matt Davis. Um, mm-hmm. part two is going up tomorrow. Uh, this will be at, all in hindsight when the listeners hear this, but anyways, he was, I was asking him and he said that he was shooting a lot of eight shot at Chuckers. Yep. And I had kind of made the comment to him that typically I feel like when I hear, uh, recommendations for Chuckers and pellet, uh, shot size, it's, it's often larger than that sixes or fives yep. or that kind of thing. And we went into, um, we were just sort of sharing our own thoughts on, you know, pattern density and pellet count, which I know you and I have talked about, and it sounds like you're, you know, not far off there in seven and a half, that, that being a seven and a half, I feel like is a pretty dang good all around shot size. And, and that was, that seemed to play out for you this year. But, um, was there some thinking there that you wanted to, you know, in going down in payload, you wanted to keep your pellet count up. So you went to seven and a halfs. A hundred percent. I got a chuckle out of last week when you <laughs> released the podcast with Matt, because he's talking about the converts, you know, the mm-hmm. people that he's impl- and I believe the first one. Were you one of them? <laughs> I am a Matt Davis convert <laughs> without question. Yeah. Um, looking at pattern density as opposed to uh, kinetic energy per pellet. Mm. Yeah, a hundred percent. I'm completely a believer in drink the Kool Aid now. Uh, yeah, I was a guy that would never shoot less than sixes at chuckers. Um, and I still think sixes are kind of that balance point. Sure. Especially if you're looking at running a 12 gauge, like running an ounce and an eighth of sixes, you know, I still have a, a reasonable amount of pellet count there to where, you know, I, I'm very, but it's like 285 or something like that. You're in dang good shape and we have a nice full round pattern, but going to seven and a half and down into that seven, eighth, say it's seven eighths of an ounce of payload in the 20 gauge running 305 pieces shot um my patterns were just so much more uniform and less gap and my birds just seemed to get hammered yeah like i was so impressed um i yeah completely a convert it's an interesting point that we have talked about quite a bit and you could you could certainly call me a a convert of sorts in that, you know, my thinking has certainly been influenced by the likes of Del Whitman and Lars Jacob and the people I've interviewed on this show. Um, yeah. and now I've, now I've, you know, put it into practice with my own experience and kind of seen it with my own eyes. So, um, can I, I feel at least able to comment on it, but it's interesting because you, you bring up a good point. If you've got, if you are shooting a 12 gauge announcing an eighth payload, you know, go, go look at your pellet counts. That's the one thing I always want to keep hammering home is, is look at the pellet counts and, and, Get a grasp of how that uh, relationship is affected by your payload and what you're shooting out of the end of your gun. Not to mention the you know the whole patterning side of things, which um, is a huge component that is not done enough. And I'm raising my hand over here. I, I don't do it enough either. But <laughs> anyway, you know, an ounce and an eighth payload of six shot is gonna is gonna throw more energy downrange than your seven eighth ounce 
uh, payload of seven and a half shot, but by you acknowledging that you're going down in payload and you go you go smaller shot size to keep the pattern density up. It's just understanding that relationship is kind of what was sort of eye-opening for me, I guess. And uh, I've seen very similar results in, in my own shooting, primarily on rough grouse and woodcock over here. Yeah. And that's very well said. And, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm completely in alignment with you and granted I've shot, I've shot pheasants. Um, I'm not as well versed as, you know, guys that, you know, maybe live in South Dakota. There's no question, but pound for pound, especially late season chuckers are dirty, tough birds. And it's a lot of it's based just upon shot angle and um, the diversity of shots that you're going to see and the opportunity to drop a leg on a chucker and watch them go a thousand feet mm. is something that happens a lot yeah. or can potentially. And um, it made a believer out of me really, really quick as I had to fight rolling over into like late November, December, thinking traditionally that's where I would probably reach for the 12 and thinking that I needed to step up in that shot size, but then also needed knowing I needed to step up and payload. And I forced myself. It was like, if it's not broke, just keep going. If I start to have an issue, yep. that's fine. And I have another alternative and we'll be okay. And it left me uh, not yearning for anything. It was, it was exceptional. And in fact, for me, granted, there's a bunch of other things that could potentially um, play into that, but I was much more effective with that than I was with the other. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, even if you, if you just control for sort of the whole gun fit, like what you, what you realize, which what you can say with authority is that when the pattern was placed where it needed to be, it had the effect and it really had nothing yep. to do that. It was seven and a half shot and not six shot. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And, 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 you know, then it does, it gets the wheels turning even more and makes me want to embark on the journey that you are. Uh, you start <laughs> right. talking about looking at, at reloading because I start wondering, well, if I could get nickel plated eights, mm -hmm. well, what could I do with eights? Yeah. Um, because another concern of mine then was if I'm upping my payload or upping my lowering my payload and, and upping my pellet count, am I going to start having more meat damage? Because mm -hmm. that yeah. was a concern. Yeah. Uh, that was I shot a lot of birds this year, and that was not something that was ever an issue. The difference in a seven and a half to an eight shot is is nominal, but still yeah. a, substantial enough to where I am upping the fullness and the pellet count within my pattern. So uh, it definitely starts the wheels turning and thinking about going down the road of of learning the reloading game. And I'm I'm very well. I shouldn't say I'm very well versed. I'm experienced within the calibers that I know fairly well. Uh, when it comes to rifles, I've reloaded yeah. for a long time, but it, you know, it, it's definitely something I've been contemplating. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a, obviously an, another interesting side of things. And I think it, if you, if you care to go down that road and, and want to get into, you know, component quality, which is kind of what Matt Davis was talking about, like wanting right. to, wanting to keep the, the quality of your shot up and the quality of your components and not be subject to, 
simply what you can find on factory shelves, which in some cases, uh, primarily 12 and 20 gauge, you know, you've got so many options there that, right. you know, and I know in talking to you a little bit, you had, you had found some, I, I found, uh, uh, I won't even mention it here because, uh, we don't, I don't want the secret to be out necessarily, but I found, uh, uh, uh some cases of shells available that, that I think you might be interested in. So I'll mention those to you when we're done. Please do, because I've been looking, I have been looking and they are phenomenal. And, um, I hate to say that I'm owing, um, all the success within that 20 gauge to that one specific load, right. but it, it is an anomaly in offerings over the counter that are specific, that are properly the proper amount of payload with a quality component of shot. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's an anomaly. And um, if guys look for or start listening to what you and Matt and other people are saying, it's out there to find and people can find it. But right now it's at a price that's like, I think I, I haven't paid more than $120 a case. Oh, that's pretty good. And um, for a qu- high quality premium product like that, uh, it's exceptional. And yeah, I want to keep that gravy train going as long as I can. <laughs> I love it. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Okay, so so where does the where does the lowly old twenty eight gauge does that still have a place in your in your head at all? But where are you at with that? Oh, it has a huge <laughs> place in my head, but it has a place in my head with moving forward. Yeah. So I had a twenty eight gauge round body Rosini, um, and it now belongs to my good friend Matt Davis. No kidding. Yes, that guy's yes. a gun collector, man. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's got he's got a he's got quite the nice collection i love for sure. it so um yeah i i sold that gun to matt last year and um he's been just absolutely loving it and he's i mean gosh you get you want to talk about a wing shooter um he's definitely in the top three wing shooters that i i hmm. know um he is impressive we went and had a sharp tails and him with that little pump 410 he was talking to you about yeah uh, with sharp tails and huns when we hunted together. I mean, he's just, he's automatic. It's, it's impressive to watch, but, um, so yeah, I keep seeing in my brain, uh, a 28 gauge that's in the side-by-side configuration of some side, some sort. Um, it's obviously a conversation. I think I've even shared with you that we need to have around a campfire and yeah. at some point because, um, I, I'm ready to to go down that road. I don't know why visually um, I see that because I've shot a side-by-side one time ever in my life. And it was on a clays course with a guy who just happened to have one. And I'm like, Hey, can I maybe shoot some clays with it? So, <laughs> um, 
yeah, I, I, I'm really, I'm really fascinated in it. And yes, I definitely have an affinity for the 28 gauge. My buddy Tristan shoots one a lot mm. and he is very effective. In fact, he, he will opt for the 28 gauge most of the time over his 20 gauge interesting. and they are, it's a two barrel set. Oh. So that's, what's even more interesting okay. is more. So we're talking same stock dimensions, but whether it's just where that balance point is, um, something is different to where he feels much more confident wielding the 28 than he does the 20 most of the time. So yeah. uh, he's done, so I saw him do some really great things with his this year. And um, the amount of time that I owned mine, I was impressed with it for sure. Um, and I'm, I'm at some point I'm going to go down that road again. So yeah. Can, can you share what kind of gun he has? Uh, yeah. He shoots a um, Joel Etchen special. Okay. So it's one of the two barrel sets. It's a, Beretta 687 Silver Pigeon number three. And then when you order from him, they upgrade you to double E, double L wood, and they come in two barrel sets. They're beautiful guns. Um, they're a great company to work with. I've bought a couple guns from them or a few guns now from them, actually. And uh, yeah, I know it's probably not a good thing to give another gun company a plug on here with you, but they are <laughs> great people. So. Hey. Yeah, we're not the only fish in the sea, and uh, I'm always I'm always curious about that. And I I have heard uh, I have heard very similar sentiments from a lot of folks as well. So, yeah, they're great people, and it's the closest thing prior to Upland Gun Company of really being able to pick and choose what you want mm. because they do have a large they get large shipments in, and you get to at least go through and look and pick your wood out. You know, you get to pick your gun, and they do. You know, they're, they're, I would say the majority, I don't know this for sure, but based upon my experiences, the majority of their sales probably come from internet sales and they have, they keep their inventory updated continually online and they have great pictures. And if you need other pictures or you need, like, they're just fantastic to work with. So, and they're beautiful guns. There's no question. And it's pretty hard to argue with, you know, the reputation of Beretta. So, yeah, very cool. Um, the reason I, I had inquired about that is because the, uh, the two barrel set thing in working now in sort of the the gun world and working with a directly with a manufacturer of guns that um, they they do two barrel sets. I've kind of I was never really other than like it, looking in the vintage space and seeing two barrel sets here and there. Like I I think I could have always talked myself out of it, but um, there are certain use cases and it it kind of varies like from make and model um, specifically mm -hmm. on which ones tend to make the most sense where you can get maybe two gauges in the right sweet spot and like you pointed out you do get um, you know you get one stock so you get the same stock dimensions pick out a beautiful piece of wood and you can have multi gauges on that same gun and uh, I'm kind of leaning that way. Obviously, one of the the perks of what I do is I can play around and do some experiments with the RFM guns that we that we bring in from Italy. Right. And I'm uh, kind of my next project probably. Uh, I've got a I've got a 28 gauge over under this year that will primarily be a clay gun that I'm looking forward to shooting this summer. But in for 2024, I'm thinking uh, along the lines of a two barrel 2028, which I, I will have some thoughts that I'll probably share on that at some point, but I think that could be the uh, could be the next one for me too. So that's awesome. Well, it's an interesting concept, right? You're trying to scratch the itch right between the right brain and left brain, right? And right. Um, you know, I think from a, a pragmatic standpoint, it's a, it's an awesome idea. Tristan loves his. Um, interesting enough, you know, like my 20 gauge was a two barrel set that I broke. Mm. And I only got the 20 gauge. Um, for me, it 
there's not enough romance there. Uh, that takes away the opportunity for me to buy another gun. Sure, and sure. <laughs> yeah. the, also like the romance again, if you're going to have a 28 gauge, I really like it on the 28 gauge frame. Right. And you start changing when you put the 28 gauge on most people probably don't think about this or realize that they automatically think that, well, if I've got a 20 gauge frame and I put 28 gauge barrels on it, that it's going to be lighter because the 28 gauge, well, it's actually not correct it's heavier. Yep. So it just changes it. And to me that potentially could cause the gun to feel worse with one set or another. And then I have this set of barrels here because this is where my pragmatics sets in is I'm a guy that, I'm not into having a lot of guns. Like right, I, right. I want my tools to be tools that I use and there's a purpose for them and they're very intentional. And if that means that I need to go buy another tool, I'm okay with that, but I'm not okay with a set of barrels sitting in the safe that I don't use. So that for was the reason for me that, um, yeah, I broke a set actually. I found the piece of wood I wanted and was like, I'll just take the 20 and did not take the 28. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, but I, I definitely share some of those sentiments. And I think I'm, uh, you know, we won't go into it today, but I think I'm, I'm getting to a point where I'm uh, comfortable with a few of those things for for various reasons but anyways that, that's yeah. an interesting conversation for another day i for want sure. to uh, i want to talk about blue grouse a little bit we had we had teased that we would come back to that and i did get some questions from folks so uh i'm gonna grab those quickly here and so one of them was from uh, uh listener trevor i talked to him fairly often and he uh his main question regarding blue grouse is time of day he's gathered that mornings hunting the edge of a meadow along evergreens while they feed on insects and berries is a good place um hasn't found much saying what to do post morning feeding time any any thoughts on that and then he's got a he's got a different question Okay. Well, I'm definitely going to give the disclaimer um yeah. in the beginning of this that I I'm no we're near an expert. There's people that are probably much more versed in being able to talk about this, but I have no problem sharing my experience. Yeah. Um, I would definitely say that there's a couple things that factor into this, that it's not like when I'm looking for habitat for say chucker, we're blessed with the opportunity of weather being cooperative, right? So I can hunt the whole day. Whereas with blue grouse for us here in the mountains, like I you can't, I, I've had days where by 7.30 or 8 o'clock, it's 75 degrees. So I'm having to pull dogs anyway. Um, so I try to put dogs on the ground at daylight. I would completely agree with the sentiments that he is sharing as far as what he has learned. Um, I like big, long ridges, transition zones then between where you'll have sage on the top that rolls over into a south-facing slope where the north side then is heavily timbered. Uh, working those edges has been highly, highly productive for me, mm. especially if it's in, you know, somewhat adjacent to a riparian area um, has been highly effective. Also then, you know, different berry patches, huckleberries, uh, we'll have some choke cherries, um, elderberries, stuff like that, where you can find bigger patches of it that's also adjacent to some larger stands of pines surrounded by sage. Um, fantastic so i try to put dogs on the ground at daylight and i can only carry so much water and like i said most of the time for me the days are done by nine o'clock and i'm having to switch gears and start to think about rough grouse to get down into the riparian areas where it's okay. a little bit cooler 
So, and to be honest, uh, I've just found so much success in those morning hours that I have not pursued them in the evenings. And most of our evening time, again, you're looking at such a short window of where the temperatures are, aren't so hot that, you know, you're just burning dogs up. And then you start having other factors in there. You know, we've had like last year, the season was extremely dry. Um, sending conditions were so tough, super, super tough for sending conditions, no moisture, um, mountains that haven't had any moisture for well over a month. And then you take that dew off of the ground and it becomes, it can seem like a wasteland or you're getting mad at your dog because all of a sudden they're just bumping birds and they're not doing it on purpose. They just literally don't know they're there. What about a difference in habitat in finding large males versus hens and young birds? I Nothing really comes to mind for me. Like, I don't even know if I've heard that before. Have you heard anything like that? So I, I've anecdotally witnessed it to some degree. Okay. Now, not enough yet to where I could establish a pattern and say um, unequivocally, this is where you're going to find them. It's much more, I would pair it like sage grouse. Um, occasionally, have we found some big mature males among other birds? Yes, we did last year. But was there also times that there would be like two or three big males off on their own? Yes. And I was finding those on small finger ridges that had maybe an isolated little pocket of timber. Um, again, with sage running all the way around it. But those birds would be off on their own. But then I would they, w- they would definitely be away from where I was seeing like family groups of grouse. Okay. Now, if I was in, we did have a time like Tristan came and hunted with me one weekend and he shot just a beautiful male that, um, but again, it was probably around that eight or nine o'clock hour and they were congregated in a really heavy berry patch. And it it looked like a couple broods that came together and it just happened to be a communal place. Mm -hmm. I think if you're around riparian zones, maybe you could find that as well. But if you were finding them coming out of like, say, roost habitat or first thing in the morning, there was definitely a differentiation in the type of country that they were in, not necessarily based upon habitat, but it did seem like they would isolate themselves off a little bit more. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you're, so you're, you could. So I have an answer, but not really. Yeah. Well, but like in the, my mind goes to like, all right, in the hierarchy of decision-making, let's look for blue grouse habitat first and then. You know, then you yes. might start to see some of those nuances. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I think then you could. And it was amazing last year and to see some of the were some of the sizes. I I have my brain immediately wants to call them coveys, but I, I understand that they're not oh, yeah. coveys. But it would be like two family groups that come together, and I would find them con- consistently on a certain ridge within a hundred yard area. And we're talking like twenty five to thirty birds get up. Jeez. Yeah, like like you're looking at a bunch of sage grouse, mm, yeah. um, and that was something that was a, a new thing to me for sure last year. And I got to where I could find that relatively consistent, and and groups of four and five really consistent. So whereas my experiences in the past would be you know singles, maybe doubles, but um, no, seeing large broods or almost where two broods came together. Yeah. It reminds me of the the first time I ever went sage grouse hunting. I was walking this draw with my buddy Garrett and his dog was up ahead. She was birdie. And I maybe had, have mentioned this on the podcast once before, but the dog was up ahead and she was birdie. So we were kind of on alert and I had 
to this point, you know, to my knowledge, I'd never seen a sharp, uh, a sage grouse, you know, in person at all. And right. all of a sudden this like flock of birds starts rising up. They were probably, I mean, they had to have been 60, 70, 80 yards. I mean, not even, not even close to even thinking you were going to shoot at them. So it was just kind of sort of caught me off guard. And I just, I remember turning to Garrett, like, are those geese? Like, like I, I literally had no idea what, what they were, but sure enough, they were sage grouse, but yeah, just like you have this thing in your blues, mind, you know? I mean, yeah. It, it's remarkable. And some of those big blues, it's impressive too. My wife shot probably the best bird of the year last year. And I mean, it looks like a roast chicken sitting in her hands. I mean, it's <laughs> unbelievable how big some of those birds get. Uh, yeah, that's wild. All right, back to blues. So now, aren't they? I think you mentioned this earlier, but were, was your hunting for blue grouse kind of limited to September, fairly early season, or did you stretch that out a bit? Yeah, I spent most of my time in September. Okay. So chucker season here opened September fifteenth. Yep. And I got after the blue grouse extensively until the fifteenth, and then I was like, "Well, I'm I'm going to go chucker hunting. I'm going to." hunt first thing early in the morning and try to avoid the snakes. And, um, the very first morning we went out, dogs did a great job, found a covey and I shot a bird. And when my dogs brought it back to me, it was like, I, I have an utmost respect for, for all of these birds. And, um, when they brought that bird back to me, I, I felt like it was not doing chucker justice. It was, it was a bird that looked much more resemblant mm-hmm. to the pen race birds that people, um, most of the time associate with chucker and which is a completely different beast than, you know, looking at a January chucker. And I just felt like, you know, it just wasn't the right thing for me. So we turned around and went back up and then started chasing blue grouse then all the way through till the end of September. And then most time here around the first of October, we start getting more rifle hunters and okay. um, I kind of stay out of the woods then those times. And I've then made the switch over to chucker. So yeah, most of my experience is, or all of it, is in the September time frame. Um, I don't know much about reverse migration and stuff like yeah. that Matt was talking about, and hunting them late. Um, it's something I would love to get into and, and to learn more about, but I'm just, I get one track mind, I'll be honest, buddy. And once October hits, like it's <laughs> like, okay, let's go hunt some sharp tails, go hunt some sage grouse, and then it's just all chucker and hunts until yeah. the sprint to the end of January. Well, I'm, I'm nodding my head in agreement cause I, I, uh, different, different locale and different bird, but I'm the same way. You know, I'm, people ask me where I'm go- where am I going late season? And I'm just looking at snowfall reports, just trying to find a grouse cover around here that doesn't have snow so I can <laughs> keep that fire yep. going. <laughs> yep. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the reverse migration was, I had that sort of in my mind associated with blues. I know I'd heard that, but um, we yeah. won't, won't go much more into that, but the other question I got was, was from Josh and he was kind of, um, inquiring about, you know, what, what would be somebody's thoughts on, um, you know, actually going beyond just like, what is a blue grouse and where are they? Some of those tactics and, and approaching points. I mean, what do you recall seeing as far as like dog work and hunter dog bird interactions, and maybe approaching some points, what comes to mind when I throw that at the wall? Gosh, you know, you, you talk about Josh, and he's been a guy that was a mentor to me, so I, I don't feel very qualified to, you know, answer these questions with him. He's a guy that spends a ton of time chasing this bird, and I have a lot of respect for it. But 
I definitely think that, you know, again, last time that I was on, I was fortunate enough to be on here. You know, you and I touched a little bit on something that I think is the most underrated thing that we talk about in, in the world of upland hunting. And especially when you're talking about Western upland hunting is where to approach a dog to give yourself the best opportunity. And I, I think that the reason it's so overlooked is the majority of upland hunting takes place in areas where you're void of topography with the exception of if you live out West. So um, there was definitely uh, some patterns of consistency that were shown with blue grouse uh, that I would say pay are, are, are the same as hunting chuckers and huns mm. in area that there's a lot of topography. I, and every one of those is something that is really hard to articulate because they're all so diverse and different. But if you're, you know, you've got a dog that's going on point on the edge of, you know, you've got old growth pine and sage and you're on a knife ridge and let's say, you know, the south side being the sage side, the north side being the timbered side. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, I would try to approach those birds, then again, trying to take into account wind because they're a big bird and they're going to be much more agile when they put the wind at their back. So those birds are going to, yes, they're going to feel pressure and move away from pressure, but we don't give enough attention to the fact that those birds are going to try to every time go with the wind. Hmm. And Yes, do they want to move towards the safety of cover? Yeah, that's something that I think is a real thing, but I don't know if it plays as big a role as the wind direction and where topography is because all they've got to do is go, you know, if they fly to the south side across the sage, it's the best shooting opportunity for me, obviously, but all they've got to do is go down across that and they're across the draw and then they're in another north side face. Right. So we're back in timber. So it's not like we're talking about the only stretch of timber that there is. Yeah. So they're not necessarily looking to try to get into that timber unless you've got a strong wind coming across, blowing back into it, in which case then, yeah, I would circle down around the dog on the north side in that timber and try to come up to where I'm pushing those birds out to where they're going to get up into the open. And then they're going to want to go down ridge too. They're not going to want to try to fly up ridge. It's always wind at your back and down and away. I mean, that's the quickest route to be away from you. Yeah. So you, so in that scenario, you are trying to, you would try to get below the birds. Is that what you're saying? I would try to probably come into where I was even with the bird, but I would drop below the ridge line in the north side where I was in the timber and then coming back, back up through the timber to approach that bird that is in the sage. So then, then I have all the shooting lanes of the wide open sage. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. The only thing that can kind of get you on that is if you're on a knife kind of a ridge, right? Those birds will get up low and go down and away over the sage and they're there and then they're gone. Yeah. It's a split second, right? So there's so many different things that can factor into that. Right. You know, what's the density of the timber? Are we talking wide open old growth or are we talking, you know, there could be a lot of alder or something that's there too that's going to prevent you having clear shot opportunities, but I would take into account wind direction on that tremendously. Um, I think it's, again, yes, we, we all think about wind direction a lot when we're talking about our dogs and being able to locate and actually find birds. But it plays a huge, huge factor in being able to predict the flight path of those birds too. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely something I, it, I would say it has a much greater effect 
out west than it does than yeah. I'm used to back here, right? So I I do pay attention to it when I'm out there in September, and um, it's a uh, you know it's good good intel. Like if you got a dog stacked up on point and you've got a steady breeze, you got a pretty good data point on where the birds might be in relation to you and the dog. So, and exactly a, a, a very strong prediction as to where how those birds are going to behave when they get up. Right. So right. it's almost like then setting up at a clay's course where you know where the bird's going to come from and you know where your kill point's at. So, you know, chucker hunting presents itself that way a lot because, again, the more steepness of the topography, the more evident it is of where the birds are going to try to escape. It, it even comes a little bit more difficult when you're, you know, if you're hunting the plains of Montana, sure, you're going to take into account wind direction. But even if you're in rolling hills, there's not enough topography there to accurately predict at least for me, with with a lot of certainty, the direction those birds are going to potentially go. But when you start talking about covey birds, especially chuckers or huns, and, and you're adding in much more topography and wind direction, if a guy really thinks about his approach to the dog, and yes, the circle around thing has to happen a lot, and it gets, it gets even tougher when you're talking about topography, yeah. because there might be times where, you know, I, I know you've had Eric Forrester on, and I watched a video that he put out of a hunt he did on chucker hunting where he had to go um, 60 yards and it took 25 minutes. Jeez. Dogs on point 60 yards from him as a crow flies, but it took 25 minutes to get to the birds. And did he have to do that? No, he didn't have to do that. But did it present him with a shot that was going to be number one, the most ethical and number two, uh, give him the greatest opportunity without question. And it's predictable then. And again, anytime you're shooting at any game bird that's going down and away, it just, the odds are against you. And those birds can see you coming because most of the time then you're going to be skylining mm-hmm. or with the roll of the hill, they're going to see you coming. And in your mind, it feels, you know, as the crow flies, it might not be as far, but actual distance that they're seeing you and feeling pressure, those birds could be getting up at 35 to 40 sure. yards, yep. even though you've got a dog on point. So yeah, and I would say that blue grouse fall into that same category because, again, you, the one X factor that a lot of people maybe aren't used to is is dealing with topography. Yeah. What What's the blue grouse behavior around dogs and hunters and pressure? Do they do you are they moving around a lot? And then when they flush, are they like? Because I imagine maybe some of the stuff you hear from elk hunters and them being camp meat, you know, I, I envision them yep. just sort of fluttering up into a tree. I mean, how often does that happen when you've got a pointing dog on the ground? A lot of that, I feel like is situation dependent, but what's, what's their behavior like? It couldn't be, the separation couldn't be bigger mm. than it is between say a pin raised chucker to a wild chucker. Um, it, it's almost a, a travesty that we call them the same thing because when you put a pointing dog on the ground and I've shot, I've shot grouse with my bow as an archery hunter. And, you know, we've all read the stories of the fool bird, you know, as a kid in grade school. And let me tell you, it is a, a different, a different bird altogether. Um, they present tremendous challenge. They did for my dogs. And I would still, I don't have the level of confidence in, in pursuing them that I do in, in other species. And I think there's a lot of things that factor into that, you know, going back to talking about sending conditions and the way that they can be in the mountains, adding in topography and all the swirling thermals and dryness. And, you know, there's a lot of things that play into that, but you would automatically think and look at them like it's a big stinky bird. How hard could it be for the dogs? 
but they present a tremendous challenge um, based upon my experience. They are not very tolerant of pressure. A dog's going to have to be very, very careful. Um, and I have not seen, now speaking to blue grouse, I've seen rough grouse hop up in a tree. Mm-hmm. But blue grouse um, are a thunderous eruption. They fly hard and fast. And um, they're, a, they're a tremendous game bird. That's cool. And there is a ton of challenge there. I would say, you know, with my dogs, with their experience, which again is is rather limited comparatively to other species that they hunt, a good day for me is, you know, 65% of the birds that they handle. Hmm. Whereas I don't even think about it when it comes to hunting chuckers and hunts. Like we don't bump birds, but um, that was my experience last year. And now granted, there's some learning curve sure. there. But um, they got quite a few days, and now the days that we would have a strong dew and maybe get a frost in the morning, sure, they did. They handled them wonderful. But as the morning would go on and that sun got high and you'd start getting temperatures into the 70 degrees and all the different thermals and the things that go on there, and whether there's just enough ground cover um, in the country that I'm hunting them in, whether it's huckleberry brush or whatever that's deterring some of that scent, I'm not sure, or just again, the, the fact that that bird won't stand a lot of pressure. Yeah. It's, it's a completely different bird than the one you see driving on a mountain road and you get out and you look at, it and you can throw rocks at. Yeah. It's amazing how different they are. Yeah. That's when you are, put a dog on the those ground. Are neat observations. And yes, similar to, yeah, sort of rough, rough grouse or, uh, as folks might be apt to call them partridge around here. Something about, right. something about a vehicle. I, I've always just, in the back of my mind is like, they just don't register a vehicle as a predator in the same way that they do when they see like a bipedal, you know, human or a, right. or a canine or what, you know, everything's a predator, but something about vehicles just don't seem to uh, alert them so much. And, yeah. I can already envision the conversation of the first time you took your wife out and we're driving around and telling her all this passion <laughs> that you have front and rough grouse. And there's one standing on the side of the road. She's like, wow, what's all the fuss you're about? You're a mighty hunter. Like, wow. <laughs> I, I see yeah. the allure. Yeah. I think she played along a little bit more and, <laughs> you know, made it sound like she was really interested, but I did. There were a couple of, uh, rough grouse hunts in college in the courtship days. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, that's funny. That's good. Yeah. Cause my wife definitely, she would go along with me, archery elk hunting and, and everything early in our relationship too. And this year she started hunting blue grouse with me. And at first she was like, oh, I don't know. And boy, yeah, I'd say that, uh, the hooks are set in pretty deep with her too. She has a, a whole new admiration for that bird as well. So yeah, I'm kind of pretty special. Yeah. I'm sort of hopeful that it's right now is not necessarily the right time uh, of our lives, but I'm kind of hopeful that at some point I would like to get my wife Lacey out to on a Western hunt, like whether it was sharp tails or whatever, just yeah. um, cause she, she loves the scenery and I think she would enjoy yeah. that, you know, a little bit more so than uh, beating through some of the rough grouse cover that I find myself in around here. But I think she could, I think she could get into a, to some Western hunting. So maybe someday. Yeah. It takes a, a certain level of admiration before you can embrace the suck. Yes, right? <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Yep. You gotta, yeah. Nowhere to start for sure. Yep. Well, we will, we're going to wrap up here shortly, but I, oh, I did, I, I jotted down a note. How do you get five, five years on your crispy boots? And I'm bringing that up sort of, uh, not tongue in cheek, but, um, you tipped me off to crispy boots last year. I made an upgrade in my, my boot game and I've been super happy with my, uh, I got the Laponia twos, which I believe at the time yeah. you had 
you had you were referring to a boot that Matt wore, and I think we kind of figured out that that was it. But either way, I ended up with the Laponia 2s, and they kind of surprised me. I thought they were going to be sort of a prairie boot that I would wear out there and then wear them back here when conditions were kind of warm and dry, but they actually... Now, relatively speaking, it was pretty dry here, so I didn't find that I needed my knee-high rubber boots that I've come to know and love um, very often here. But um, I I really, really liked my crispy Laponia boots, and they were they were awesome for me last year. So I want to make them last now. That's great. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, I I am super impressed with them. Um, I run two different pair. Uh, I run the Nevadas. And I also run a new boot they just came out with this last year. Um, and of course, I want to say the altitudes. Okay. And I've been super impressed with both. Um, how I, I've been asked that question so many times, Nick, um, because the guys that, that know me and spend time with me um, I, are like, I, I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. Um, I, whether I just lucky or what, I'm not a very big guy, you know, Uh, maybe that, that probably helps, but, um, yeah, I mean like the pair that I have right now, there's literally almost no lugs left on the bottom Mm. and I've hunted Nevada mule deer, Montana, Idaho, Oregon, Wyoming. And that doesn't even, that's all big game hunting. And, um, None of that counts the, you know, most years I do, let's say between 60 and 80 days a year following bird dogs. And then in the summer, you know, backpacking and yeah. high lake fishing. And yeah, I don't know. I, I, you know, I use an oil regiment to, to make sure that in the off season, I'm sealing them up. I do it about twice a year on them. And other than that, I just, I just wear them. Yeah. I, I have no idea. I, I just think they're a, a fantastic product, not only in the fit and feel, but obviously in the durability. They're, you know, you pay for them, but you, right. you know, you when you can get, you you figure you're paying a hundred dollars a year to take care of the most important, arguably the most important part of your body out there. Because if your feet shut down, um, you know, you can deal with being sore, you can deal with, you know, a knees, a little bit bugging you or whatever. But anybody who's ever tore their feet up. Um, knows that there's nothing that shuts you down quicker yeah. and yeah. man especially out out here i mean i can remember the days of where i've ripped the entire pad off the bottom of my feet and it's like <sighs> you're done yeah and it's it's brutal but to be able to to have a boot that i can count on and they still yep they're cracked and they're gnarly looking and i could wear them on a november day of it snowing or hard dew in late September and would never get a drop of water on my feet. Yeah. So they've been remarkable for me. I think you were, I think it was you too, that I wasn't, I was never really a big gator guy either, but having, having had, and you were, I remember you had commented that they, they're great for obviously keeping stuff out of your boots and keeping snow out or whatever, but they also kind of insulate your legs a little bit and keep some heat down there. Yeah. And, and I think it's, I it's made the, a huge difference for me. Um, so I'm a guy that has suffered for some it band issues. Mm. I'm a big fitness guy. Um, uh, I've trained my entire life. Fitness has been an intricate part of what I do. And it's, it's a necessity to be able to do the things that I, that I love to do. And, you know, I'm not an old man, but I'm not all that young either. So, 
Um, I had an IT band injury that I had from running an ultra marathon and it, when it starts to get cold, potentially I can start to have some issues. It's something that I rehab and have battled now for probably five or six years. And, um, the biggest difference that I can say that I have done to improve it as in regards to my time in the mountains is wear gaiters because just keeping my legs warm made a tremendous, a tremendous difference. That's interesting. And then the, the theory would be like, if your legs get colder, colder, uh, blood vessels would maybe restrict and restrict blood flow. Right. Like am I, am I on the 100%. right train of thought there? Yep. Yeah. Yep. A hundred percent. So the injury initially occurred for me. Um, like I said, I, I ran a, an ultra marathon, but it was, uh, you got jet boated up the snake river in hell's Canyon, 30 miles up and they drop you off and there's no aid stations. Like you literally sign the release saying, you know, if you fall and break your leg, you have to get yourself out. We're not coming to get you. Mm. And, um, they, it was March. So it was really cold and I had made a poor choice and had decided to run it in shorts and so I hit the boat, stretched a little bit and proceeded to go and it rained and was cold. I don't think it got above like 35 degrees the whole day. And just the constant um, redundancy of, you know, a monostructural movement like running coupled with the fact that it was cold and I'm a, I'm not, a, again, I'm not a very big guy. So, um, and I have a really low heart rate and um, yeah, it, it led to me having that injury that I've had to, to deal with now for a couple of years or four or five years. So, um, but it, it's paid tremendous dividends for me of like, when you go to roll out of the truck in the morning at nine o'clock and you've got to climb 2000 feet and it might be 15 degrees out. Um, most people will be like, well, you warm up pretty quick climbing 2000. Well, you, you can, but you also, there's that fine line, right? So what do they yeah. say in the skiing world of like, start cold, be bold, it's kind of you have to have the same approach when it comes to doing any of these western hunts in big country because if you're wearing too much clothes then you know if you're starting out comfortable you're in the wrong place because yeah. you're going to be pouring sweat and then you're wet and then we've got problems right yeah, then you're yeah. cold all day so it it takes some time and experience for people to learn how what proper layering systems are and figure out what works best for them mm -hmm. but um, i'm definitely a start cold guy so starting with that cold then can potentially lead to some issues where I start getting friction then along that IT band and expresses itself in knee pain to where I can't even bend my leg. I mean, it's debilitating. Well, yeah, it can well. be. So gators. Yeah. I, there's a lot of guys that, you know, I, I'm definitely the first one I'll put in line as the convert that Matt converted me to, to run in, you know, smaller payloads and, and smaller shot. Uh, but I've had a lot of response on the Gators thing. It's been talked about quite a bit, actually. And mm. guys, I've got some really great feedback from other people that have potentially had some injuries or has negated injuries. And again, that's kind of my background too, is in the exercise science world. So yeah, I I brought them up really because I I have a pair, um, and like I said, I never never really had much reason to wear them because I was always kind of wearing like in a situation that I would wear them, I would tend to lean on those knee high rubber boots. But this year, my last few rough grouse hunts of the year were kind of in three to three to four or five inches of snow. And I, you know, because I had, I was like, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And, and this will be right. the test. You know, let me wear these, these crispy boots with some gaiters on top in the snow and see how it goes. And 
at the end of it, I was I was really impressed. You know, I got to wear the boots that I really enjoyed wearing all season, and the Gators were. You know, I mean, it's it's not that I was doubting it, but um, waterproof. You know, they keep everything out, they keep everything off yep. your boots, and uh, yeah, they do a. It's a nice little addition to the gear kit, I will say. Without question, and you know, you think about you're mitigating risk. So if you're walking out there in four to five inches of snow in a rubber boot, um, you're in a, a place of diminished mobility. Mm, There's no question. Yeah. So if you're putting yourself in a place of diminished mobility, then we're also increasing the opportunity for us to have a fall or something that could be not only season ending, but could potentially be worse or, you mm. know, on the minor level, you're scratched the gun that you love dearly. So why would you, you know, why would you compromise mobility when there's another option that can serve, serve you from a physiological standpoint, but also increase your mobility? Yeah. Um, yeah. They're, I am a huge, huge advocate of them. Yeah. And I think I had sort of gotten by with, um, not to go too much further into this, but with, with the rubber boots, I, you know, I'm still a fan of them for certain applications, but I was kind of pushing them to the limits, you know, on longer hunts and just knowing mm-hmm. that in hindsight, it, it's really highlighted that definitely losing some efficiency, you know, without having your foot totally locked in, um, you know, your foot is, you know, I, I have some, some boots that fit me well, so they're not like slap slopping and sliding around all over the place, but it's not quite the same. I don't think uh, from an efficiency standpoint of transferring, um, you know, your energy and, and movement into the ground. So, um, that for was kind of, sure. was kind of opening for me last season. It was just interesting. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed them. They're, they're an intricate part of my kit. There's yeah. no, no question. Very cool. Well, I know you, uh, I know you're rocking your final rise vest. Any other, uh, before we leave this entirely, any other, uh, any other pieces of new pieces of gear, anything for you last year or kind of running the same stuff? <sighs> I, I'm taking the deep going into final rise, you know, yeah, I, I'm, gosh, I've, I think Matt made a post not very long ago that he thought I had one of the, one of the original Summit final best. rises that yeah. went out. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I had to have a little bit of stitching replaced, but otherwise that thing was, you know, yeah, it's been incredible. Um, I went ahead this year and added a sidekick. Oh, you did. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've had the sidekick bag, but I'm regret to admit it but it's been too lazy to change it back and forth so i went ahead and put together the full system to work I got that you. Too, and yeah. my wife can wear the sidekick and um i like to wear my vest also you know i shoot skeet mm-hmm. and five stand and sporting clays so the sidekick is is perfect for doing that and yep. then um you know i spend time with george DaCosta and helping train out there with him sometimes and running my dogs and the sidekick is just really really awesome for that I, I want to get to where I'm carrying it hunting more, but I just have a really hard time abandoning the summit for its ability to handle all of the stuff I may potentially need for a dog. You know, um, I think I, I may utilize it a little bit more when it comes to hunting blue grouse this year, because in my mind, um, the number one threat and thing that I think about out, you know, chasing chuckers or hunts is traps. So Mm having the ability to have the equipment to take care of that is at the forefront of my mind. And when I have that stuff and a sidekick, it just doesn't work out quite as well. Whereas I don't feel like, you know, that risk analysis where I have quite as big a risk in the blue grouse woods. I'm not in the woods as long, or even in the rough grouse woods, I can throw a small med kit in and I'm never as far from my pickup. Whereas, you know, trucker hunts, we leave the pickup and I'm back in six hours. Yeah. And I'm, I'm probably going to do 10 to 12 miles. So, 
Um, the sidekick is a brilliant system and I love the concept, but I personally just can't get away from having all that gear. So, but I'm going to try to integrate it in in some other ways this year. Um, and I'm really excited about that. But beyond that, no, I'm, you know, of course my mind's always reeling over shotguns, but, um, <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty dialed in. I think, um, I am going to go ahead and bite the bullet and probably pick up another pair of Nevadas, another pair of Krispies this right. year to get them started. But no, other than that, I'm just counting down the days, been feeding fish in the meantime to try to, you know, make sure that I'm staying sane. And yeah. Yeah. That's been yeah. about it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. What about turkeys? Are you be chasing them at all this spring? Oh, I wish I had the bug, but I just Don't haven't have gotten into it. So <laughs> I, I've shot one turkey. Okay. Um, it was about five years ago, called one in and, um, had a guy help call for me and kind of show me the whole experience. And Tom comes in strutting and doing everything that Tom's doing. It was remarkable. I shot him with a bow at eight yards. Oh, wow. And it was, it was really cool. But I grew up running the mountains chasing bears, and it's just really hard to to get away from that to chase sure, turkeys. Sure. Um, so I don't know, you know. And now my wife and I love to fly fish together, yeah. and she loves to go, and it's a whole family event. So right now, you know, there's some some really great early mayfly blueing olive hatches going off, and we've been fishing together. And as spring starts, you know, I'll probably spend my time lurking on the banks and wading the rivers and spending time with my family. So yeah, that sounds all know. right to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've got guys, you know, Tristan's a fanatic about hunting turkeys and he's always trying to get me <laughs> to go and I love to eat them and it is really cool. I mean, anytime you're communicating with an animal, it's remarkable right. and it, right. it does scratch a little bit of the itch that I, you know, miss when it comes to archery elk hunting, but I just, uh, I don't know. I, I, I haven't, I don't have the bug like everybody else. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm definitely, cool, I'm in the honeymoon phase, you know, I just like, I, yeah. I'm, uh, it's, it's early and I'm just getting a taste for it. And it's a, it's a new opportunity for us around here, which I think is, that's kind of a uh, part of it for me that it's just like, we didn't have the opportunity when I was growing up and now we do. So it's kind of, it's unique in that way, but, um, yeah, you, you're, well, you uh, talk about another endeavor that there's, you know, you can get wax poetic about. I mean, yeah. turkey hunting is no the same lure is there that is around rough grouse too. There is people that, you know, they live and die turkeys and it's, that's super cool. Yeah. Super yep. cool. For sure. All right, buddy. Well, Hey, we, uh, we covered a lot of ground. It was a blast as always. I want to, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on and chat with me and the listeners. There's a lot here and, uh, always encourage feedback and comments from folks. They can email me nick at birdshoppodcast.com, but certainly wish you well, you and I will keep in touch. And, uh, one of these times we will, we will get to hunt together maybe this year. We'll have to see, oh, buddy. that would be awesome. And, and thank you, Nick. It's always an honor. You know, you do such a great job with the podcast and, uh, the influence that you have on our community and the way that you conduct yourself is you're, you're an awesome guy. So thank you for all that you do. And thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Kind words, buddy. Thank you. And again, thank you for taking the time on the Bird Shop podcast. Hang with me for just a second. That does it for this episode. We'll catch everybody next time. 
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.